Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China. And full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Now, we're delighted to have an interview with the First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford. And please don't be too surprised if we don't talk about the Queen or King Charles, because the interview was conducted shortly before the sad demise of Her Majesty. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And a very special guest. We are absolutely delighted to welcome the First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford. Mark, hello and thank you for being here. Very pleased to be here. Now, can I kick off? Because every time I read about you in any sort of profile piece, the word Corbynista gets attached to you. And I can see from the grimace that that probably irritates you a bit. But I just want to get a sense of your politics. If if we accept that Jeremy is, say, on the left of the party and my old boss, Tony, is on the right of the party, where are you putting yourself adjacent or between them? Well, I think of my own politics as being derived from the radical Welsh tradition. Uh, and, you know, that can go back as far as Lloyd George and gets handed down the generations via Aniron Bevan, Michael Foote, Neil Kinnock. It's that strand in Welsh politics, which is to the left uh, of the centre. But, you know, all of politics in Wales is to the left of where it would be across the United Kingdom. Uh, and insofar as I think of myself as belonging to a tradition, it is to that sort of radical strand in Welsh politics. And, and Mark, can you help, help me on this? Because I'm obviously a an ex-Tory talking to you, and a lot of this is, is alien to me, and I'm trying to understand the world you grew up in. Um, so you're, you're somebody who's been described as an atheist Republican socialist. Is that is that roughly right? Uh, I'm not brave enough to be an atheist. Uh, I'm, an, uh, I'm an agnostic. Uh, Very good. But okay. uh, the other things would be true. The other things would be true. And when you were growing up, there was a very dominant figure, actually, even when you were an adult, because you came, I think, into elected politics surprisingly late. We're in a world where um, most of the last lot of prime ministers have got in in their 40s or early 50s. I think you didn't become a, an elected member till you were in your, your late 50s, did you? You had a whole separate career as an academic and various things. But I've noticed this, that this big figure called Jack Brooks, who seems to dominate a lot of talking about the early 80s in Wales, and I'd love a sense of 
what labor politics in Wales felt like in the late 70s, early 80s, when you were beginning to get involved, what kind of character he was, and how it's changed. I mean, how would Jack Brooks think about the Welsh Labour Party if he was to turn up today? Maybe you could tell listeners a bit about Jack Brooks before you tell us a little bit, answer that question. Yeah, well, um, I became a councillor in my 20s. Uh, Jack was the leader of South Glamorgan Council during the time that I was a councillor, so I certainly saw him at very close quarters. Uh, he was, if you contrasted modern politics to the politics that Jack grew up in, then it was pretty much a sort of male-dominated, uh, probably boss-led sort of politics, you know, where big beasts dominated local councils across Wales. And was he a boxer? He, he very interested in boxing, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. No, he was. He was a plasterer uh, by, uh, by training. If, if you wanted to... Uh, learn something about him, I'll tell you a story that he used to tell, uh, which was going out as a young man in his early 20s to a nightclub in Cardiff. He's all dressed up. He's ready for a night out. He sees a young woman uh, across the floor and she's looking at him and uh, he thinks, well, my night could be uh, turning up a bit uh, here. Uh, And she comes across the floor to him and says to him, oh, you're Jack Brooks, aren't you? And he, think, he definitely thinks the night is getting better. Uh, and she says to him, you're the kid who used to have free school meals. Uh, and I think it's that sort of experience, really, which shaped him and would have shaped many other people in the Labour Party. You know, that sense that people are not to be shaped by their origins and that the job of the party is to provide the chances for people to be able to make the very most of their talents and their abilities. Just one more sort of push at this before I bring back Alistair. Help us understand the idea of a, a sort of boss figure in early 80s politics, if it's not too sensitive. Maybe this is too sensitive. Maybe you're going to be offending Labour Party listeners by talking too frankly about this. But I saw a glimpse of this in politics in Scotland in the in the 90s when things really felt as though they were run by bosses. What What did that feel like in terms of how things were run and operated? Shall I tell you a story that appeared in the Guardian obituary of Lord Haycock? Right. So uh, Lord Haycock ran the old Glamorgan County Council uh, and, you know, nothing moved without uh, Lord Haycock having ordained that it should move. And the story in the obituary was of two Jehovah's Witnesses uh, knocking the door of his home just outside Port Talbot. And uh, Lady Haycock comes to the door and the two Jehovah's Witnesses say to her, does the Lord dwell in this house? To which she is alleged to have replied, yes, he does, but he's out watching Abaravon at the moment. (laughs) 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 And uh, I think that might give you just a flavour of what it was like to be a dominant figure in Welsh local government. A long time ago now, it's very different. Do you think we've talked on, when we we did a, a special episode recently about when Liz Truss was made Prime Minister and we were talking about the fact there have been now three Conservative women Prime Ministers. Do you think that historically the male dominance of the Labour Party and the trade union movement has has been part of a legacy that has made it more difficult for Labour to find a woman Prime Minister? Well, I think it is part of our, our, our history, but we are capable of amending it you know, I lead a Labour group in the Senate, which has 17 women and 13 men mm. in it. There are five women in my cabinet and four men, and women fill all the major sorts of uh, ministerial 
positions. They're not in any way confined to what you might have thought as the traditional mm. uh, responsibilities that women would undertake. So, you know, that is a very steep change to the sort of world in which, you know, my early experience of labour politics in Wales mm. would have been shaped. So we are capable of amending our own history and we need to go on doing that. Now, we don't want to talk too much about the wretched Boris Johnson, um, but I got the sense of your relationship with him being very, very difficult. What do you think the relationship between a First Minister of Wales and a UK Prime Minister should be, and what hopes do you have for a better relationship with Liz Truss, and how realistic do you think that is? Well, the fundamental word is that it needs to be respectful. Mm. So I've worked with a series of you know different Prime Ministers, including Conservative Prime Ministers, and I think there was a very big contrast between relations with Theresa May when she was Prime Minister and with her successor. I disagreed with Mrs May on almost anything you'd like to say and you know, was terribly frustrated at what I thought was her fundamental mistake in regarding Brexit as a winner-takes-all uh, sort of referendum. But I would describe her as an instinctive Democrat, If you were in a room with her and she was prime minister, she would make a conscious effort to make sure that anybody in the room who had a view they wanted to contribute had an opportunity to contribute that view. And, you know, that is a sort of instinctive respect for the range of different individuals and experiences that you will will come across. So I think it is perfectly possible to have good, effective constructive working relationships with people who are in a different party from you and occupy a different position. But it's got to be founded on a basic sense of respect and parity of participation. Wales is a small country. It is not the same as a country the size of England. Uh, But parity of participation is something different. You know, every voice has a right to be heard and to be treated respectfully. And you felt that Johnson didn't treat you with respect? On an individual level, on the rare occasions that I uh, had direct conversations with Mr. Johnson, he, you know, he, he was courteous. He, he wasn't disrespectful in that way. But his approach to the future of the United Kingdom was very different. You know, Theresa May, in the final lecture in Edinburgh, described the United Kingdom as a voluntary association of four nations. I think that was, you know, the end of quite a long journey, probably, for her. Boris Johnson believed that the way to save the United Kingdom was to, you know, assert muscular unionism, mm. bully boy Britain, uh, as you might uh, more pejoratively put it, in which the way to secure the future of the United Kingdom was to show who was boss. And actually, that was completely counterproductive and contributes to the fragility of the United Kingdom, rather than helping it to be something which people choose to belong to, want to belong to. Can I come in quickly on this? Um, You're somebody who describes yourself as a a federalist or a a unionist. But I guess there were some people who were quite shocked to to see you, um, as it were, get into bed with Plaid Cymru. And I, I wondered whether that was something that gave you any moments for pause or reflection before you did it? Well, it would only be shocking to somebody outside Wales. You know, my party's been in power uh, in Wales throughout the history of devolution, but we've never won more than 30 of the 60 seats on offer. So we have always had to work with other individuals and other parties in order to be able to get the job done. 
we had a full coalition with Plaid Cymru in 2007, where Rodri Morgan, uh, one of my predecessors, was the first minister. Uh, what we have learnt is, as a party in Wales, is that working with other progressive parties is not something to regard as unusual or difficult. It's challenging, but it can be done. We've demonstrated that it can mm. be done. And the current cooperation we have with Plycumry is designed to allow us to deliver on the most radical parts of our agenda, things which I think are very difficult to do if you're a party on your own, and certainly a party that has only half the seats available. So I know at a UK level, the idea of working across parties is regarded as, you know, somehow a failure of the system. No, 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 no. Let me push back a little bit, Mark. It's not not that, I mean, I was part of a coalition with Lib Dems. I think it's the problem of working with a party that's explicitly committed to independence. Uh, well, obviously, I fundamentally disagree with them on that point. Uh, I believe in strong and entrenched devolution where decisions are made as close to people as possible. But I also believe that the United Kingdom is better off for having Wales in it and Wales is better off for being in the United Kingdom. But that's because we choose to belong to it, mm. because we think there are important purposes that we discharge better together. Now, I disagree with Pike Henry uh, on that. And we fought an election only a year or so ago where that choice was very explicitly with people. That doesn't mean that there aren't very important things that we are able to agree on and can work together, as we would see it, you know, for the benefit of the people who have elected us. We had we had Keir Starmer on the podcast of, a few weeks ago, Mark, and he, I think he disappointed both of us, really, in that he didn't seem to share our belief that politics was now potentially so broken that there has to be at least a debate about some pretty major political and constitutional change. And to be fair, you have been putting out some ideas for further reform of the constitution and further form reform of, of, of democracy. Do you not think that Labour nationally is across the UK is missing a bit of a trick in playing into this worry about the state of our politics rather than actually defending the status quo? Well, I think uh, Keir Starmer did a very important thing in commissioning Gordon Brown to mm. lead a piece of work which will range over a, you know, a series of these really important constitutional questions. I've had the chance to uh, stay pretty close to the work of the Commission. I was talking to Gordon about it last week. Um, I think when it is published, you know, it will set out a prospectus for Labour mm -hmm. that will give us the, the arguments that are needed and the rigour of uh, debate behind it that will, I think, you know, provide quite a radical prospectus for the future of the United Kingdom. Um, I have to say, I, I'm never interested in constitutional questions because they are constitutional questions. Mm. I'm interested in them because they are the way in which we are better able to solve the problems that face people in their daily lives. That's why we should be interested in them, because they give us the basis for doing yeah. that. Mm. To take take one example then, I mean, one, one of the problems that we certainly feel in Westminster is that the existing parties feel very, very tired. And one of the reasons why certainly I support proportional representation is to give room for new, fresher parties to emerge, to break up some of those old structures, to give voters a chance to be a bit more entrepreneurial, and maybe to provide a bit of challenge to some of those old stuffy parties and make them 
step up their game rather than assuming that they can continue to have a two-party dominance. So looking at the horror of the last um, decade or more and the way how stultified Westminster politics feels, I would have thought proportional representation is a real solution to a problem. It's not constitutional change for its own sake. Well, I, I work in a proportional system. You know, the Senate is elected uh, under a system of PR, and we have proposals to reform the way the Senate is uh, elected that would make it even more uh, proportional. So I have no problem at all with that argument. And, you know, I, I'm a bit heretical. I've said it in the past that um, I think you can make a good argument for saying that administrations that have people from more than one tradition in, in them have a level of internal challenge. That means by the time you come to put your ideas in front of the wider electorate, they are better ideas because they've already had to be tested with people who don't come at the problems from exactly the same way as you do or your party does. So uh, in terms of trying to you know, not have a stultified, narrow debate that just sticks within the parameters, I think our experience in Wales in which you know, in every election we've had to work with other people the challenge that brings with it is actually good for democracy and I think improves the quality of policymaking. If, would you not be happy if you felt that there was actually quite a lot of cooperation right now between Labour and the Lib Dems about how best to get rid of the Tories at the next election? Because it seems to me the country is desperate to get rid of the Tories, but the system is not going to make that easy. The system doesn't make it easy. The system drives people into tribal ways of doing things. And we compete for people's votes up and down the country. So, it, you know, you're right. It, it's a it's an uphill thing to try and rest on cooperation. I think I've been involved in evolution for the whole of 20 years. I was an advisor to Rodri Morgan mm. from the very beginning. And I do feel one of the things I have spent 20 years doing sometimes is trying to remind my own colleagues but the fault line on the floor of the Senate is between progressive parties on one hand and the Tories on the other. That is the fundamental fault line. And we shouldn't act as a Labour Party on the floor of the Senate in ways that drives some of the more progressive voices closer to the Tories because we don't appear willing to be able to talk with them, explain with them, learn from them, all of those things. You know, the fundamental fault line in Wales is between the three quarters of the electorate who vote for parties of the centre-left and the quarter of the Welsh electorate that votes for the Conservative Party. And, you know, that's the fault line we should be working on. People who are on the non-Tory side of it, of course, should be able to talk together. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, you're meant to be a famous example of this kind of technical thing of avoiding persocification, which is um, this horrible jargon word for listeners who are not staying on top of it for PASOK, the, the, the Greek left-wing party, which managed to get wiped out, went from having almost half the vote to almost no vote at all in, in a few years, half a dozen years. Um, what lessons should we draw about what happened to Labour in the Red Wall, what happened to Labour in Scotland, but didn't happen to Labour in Wales? And I'm going to challenge you to try to be a bit, bit less political. You're being quite polite all the time, but if you had some real He's a very polite man. That's one of the reasons why he's popular in <laughs> Wales, Rory. Um, but some <laughs> reflections on what went wrong in the Red Wall, what went wrong in Scotland. Lost the SNP in Scotland, lost to the Tories in Northern England. Uh, well, Rory, because I'm often asked, and you know, I'm going to answer it the way I always do, which is that I'm never here to teach other people lessons. Uh, I'm very happy to share the Welsh experience. And sometimes there will be things in, in that that other people will find useful and they can they can draw on it, but I don't approach it on the basis that we have done things that you know allow us to tell other people what to do. But um, in November of this year, it will be 100 years since Labour first won a majority in a general election in Wales, and we've never not done that since. <laughs> now, happy days, happy that. days, happy country. Uh, and uh, during the, the, the Conservative Party has never won an election in Wales ever. Uh, ever since 1832 and the onset of, you know, universal suffrage. The 19th century was dominated by the Liberal Party, the 20th century mm. by the Labour Party. So I'm very lucky, you know, I'm... But, but Mark, just to interrupt, that, that also, broadly speaking, is true of Northern England and Scotland. Again, the same shift from Liberals to Labour. The Conservatives were never dominant forces in Northern England or Scotland. Well, actually, that's not true, is it, Rory, is it? You know, if we're just trying to be accurate about it... The Tories won elections in Scotland in the 1950s. They were not a dominant, dominant force. Party. They were not a dominant they, force over the century. That was a very oh, no, exceptional no. result. That was a small exceptional result. Primarily, Scotland has been on the left. Yeah. Primarily, but not exclusively. And Wales is the only party, part of the United Kingdom, where exclusively that would be true. Now, why have we, con- why have we managed to continue to do that? Well, here are, here are three or four 
qualities which I think you know have helped with that. First of all, just hard work. Let's not forget, you know, I, always, I do little terms sometimes when I'm talking for the Labour parties that say, you know, people get attracted into the Labour Party because it's 90% inspiration. You know, they want to achieve something. They think this is the way to do it and 10% perspiration. Uh, and when you get into it, most of politics is, you know, perspiration. Uh, and just the, the sheer slog of making sure that you're always talking to people, you're knocking doors, you're answering the phone, you're having those conversations. And we're very lucky in Wales that we are the only party who is able to put people out on the streets to do that work. And we earn every vote we get. You know, I want nobody to say to me they vote Labour because they've always voted Labour or because their father would turn in his grave if they didn't vote Labour. I want people to vote Labour because we have persuaded them, we go on you know, convincing them that that's the right thing to do, and we earn the votes that we that we have. I think we're very lucky because we've been in power, then we have credibility when we say to people at an election that this is these are the things we would like to do for them because we're able to show them that we've done those things already. You know, the fact that you can point to your record and say, we told you last time this is what we would do, and look, here's how we did it, gives us a credibility with Welsh voters that is much harder to do when you're in opposition. So, so Mark, let, let, let me, let me, let me t- tighten my question. Why do you think Labour voters voted Conservative in Northern England? I think there were a constellation of circumstances that meant that that was happening. It happened in Wales as well. We lost seats. Um, the whole Brexit fatigue, the entirely false claim that there was a deal that would just get Brexit uh, done. But to go back to my point about earning votes and showing people respect, I think sometimes in some parts of the country, Labour has been in danger of looking like we don't really like the people who vote for us, that uh, they vote for us, but we don't, you know, we're, we're slightly shamefaced about the support that we get. And I never want that to be true in Wales. Do you, do, you, do, you think, do you mean by that, Mark, that you think there were parts of the country where we just assumed that people would vote Labour because they always had done and we didn't really take their interests into account, whether that was over cost of standard of living or, or immigration or some of the language and style of politics? What, 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 do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I'm afraid people got that impression. Whether it was true or not, I'm sure they were very hardworking people you know, representing those areas for Labour who weren't at all that. But somehow we, we conveyed the impression to people mm. that we, we took for granted the fact that they would vote for us. Mm. Uh, and we weren't always that keen to, to show how proud we were that we had earned that, that support and proud of them. And, you know, I am proud of every, every person who votes Labour in Wales. Mm. So, so, Mark, um, just to be cheeky, um, if, if this was Alistair a few weeks ago, he would say, if you look at the records since 1980... Elections basically go Tory, 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 Tony Blair, Tony Blair, Tory, 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 Tory. And the conclusion that one might draw from that is that the lesson for Labour is that it needs to be much more new Labour, much more Tony Blair. And that's not your tradition. So I wonder what you'd answer to that challenge. I'm not sure I'd put it exactly like that, by the way. (laughs) Let me give you two other qualities which I think have helped us. Uh, in our success. And the one links to what I've just been saying, which is identity. To be Welsh and to be Labour are two identities that sit on top of one another very comfortably. And we work hard to make sure that we sustain that. 
And, you know, I think we have to work harder in some places to say to people that to be a Labour supporter somewhere, you know, it's an identity that works for your locality and for your town. Mm. You know, to be Labour in Luton is an identity that tells you that the Labour Party is interested in, on the side of, keen to represent the people who live in that area. So I, identity, I think, is a re- very important component in our but Mark, success. Mark, was that not once the case in Scotland? I mean, I can remember, you know, growing up from a, a very Scottish family, that was felt to be what, you know, people felt Scottish and Labour, and those two identities were very much, it felt the same. I mean, could oh. you ever envisage a, 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 a period in history where that might disappear in Wales, and what do you do to guard against that? Well, I can imagine it because I've seen it happen in Scotland. And, mm. you know, I, we worked very hard indeed to say to people that you don't have to show your Welsh by voting for a nationalist party. Uh, you can reaffirm your Welsh identity by voting for Welsh Labour because we are as Welsh as you are and determined that that identity goes on being part of the relationship between you and us. But then my final point, and this goes more to Rory's question, is that I think we try and speak in a voice and with a set of policies that are authentically Labour as well. That will be clear to somebody who's interested that these ideas and the way we talk about them comes out to that Labour tradition. Uh, And I, I do think that people respond to you know, a sense of authenticity about a political party. And sometimes that will mean saying things that you know not everybody will agree with, but they are what you believe in. And you are there to talk about the things that you believe in and to make the case for them and to do that with that sense of authenticity. And I think that has been on our side as well. Did you think that we, we new Labour, as it were, under Tony Blair, went too far in that kind of neoliberal pro-globalisation private sector direction and that that started to send confusing signals about what Labour is and what what Labour, to use your word, authentically is? I think what is authentically Labour in Wales, you know, is different to what is going to appeal to people elsewhere where there isn't the same tradition and Mm. the same sort of class structure and so on. You you, you may remember, Alistair, Rodri gave a lecture early on in devolution, which I have to admit of having having had a hand in writing for him, uh, which talked about clear red water. I do remember it. Uh, And uh, that was trying to set out, you know, a distinctive agenda for Labour in Wales, which was not part of marketisation, not part of a sense that, you know, the way you improve public services was by allowing people to become serial shoppers, so choice agenda and so on. Now, that is not because he or I believe that that was the right prescription for elsewhere in the United Kingdom, but we knew that those things would resonate uh, with people who look to the Labour Party but, in Wales. But Mark, mm. some of these things are national. I mean, you're you're opposed to Trident, right? When Keir Starmer's in favour of Trident, that's not particularly Welsh. That's a that's a global nuclear weapon. I mean, that's a. So you're taking positions on things that go well beyond the traditions of a particular part of the United Kingdom. Yeah, of course, we all have long histories uh, of uh, views, and that was my view and is my view, but it's not part of what I do as the First Minister of Wales because I have no responsibilities uh, in that field. And, you know, I do my best to spend my time working on the things for which 
the Senev and myself as First Minister have responsibility. And I try, while I'm doing this job, you know, not to get drawn into debates about things that other people have to discharge because the responsibilities belong to them. But it doesn't mean that my own ideas and you know, my own beliefs have changed. Mark, if, if Scotland did uh, become independent or if we did have a United Ireland and Northern Ireland became part of the Republic, I know these are both massive ifs, but if you were to sort of rank them in order, I think that the likelihood of Northern Ireland border poll is probably first and I think then an independent Scotland probably second. But how does Wales how does Wales shape a future then as as sort of this bit on the end of England? And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but I mean that that could happen. I just wonder what, how you think about that. Well, look, those are really important questions, and we're having to address them directly in a way that we never needed to do previously. And that's because I think you know the risk that the United Kingdom will not continue is greater today than at any time in my political lifetime. I certainly don't think it's inevitable. I think there is an offer about the United Kingdom. It is a Labour offer, uh, in my view, that people would wish to buy into. You know, they would see the advantages that the United Kingdom can bring. And we are desperately short of an articulation by any other party of the positive case for a voluntary union. We have had to set up a, a commission. It's chaired by Rowan Williams and by someone called Laura McAllister, who's a distinguished professor here in Wales, it's asked to look at two questions. First of all, if the United Kingdom stays together, how can we better organise ourselves to make sure that it goes on being a success? But then it has a second question, which is that if the United Kingdom starts not to stay together, what are the options for Wales? Because the idea that you know everything else, Scotland leaves and everything else continues as though that hadn't happened is clearly not plausible at all. Mm. Now, we've never needed to do serious thinking about what the choices for Wales would be, and the Commission will help us to do that. But we're having to map out that territory with a seriousness that uh, I think just reflects the risks that we, we currently face. Mm. Wh- wh- how would you define the independence debate right now? Uh, in Wales, it's still very much a minority view. You know, we In our election in May of last year, it had the virtue of real clarity about it. You know, I would stand on uh, platforms that the the debate at the BBC would be broadcasting. I would have somebody on my right who believed in abolishing devolution altogether. Mm. And the BBC gave them equal prominence, despite the fact they'd never won a single seat in any election. But there they were, as though they were an equal player. And on my left, there would be Adam Price, the leader by Cymru, who absolutely explicitly fought the election on the basis that the vote for him was a vote for independence. And, you know, I was the advocate of, as I say, strong and entrenched devolution in a successful United Kingdom. And there's no doubt at all where the centre of gravity in Welsh opinion lies. Mm. There is a growing interest in independence because of the risks that are there to the future of the United Kingdom. That's inevitable, but it would still be a, not a small minority, but no more than 20% or so. Can I just ask you briefly about COVID? Your your profile and the profile of, of devolution rose during COVID, and there were certain things that you did very differently. But ultimately, the UK government does control the purse, purse strings. And 
I just wonder how you feel about the way that the post-Brexit, you were Brexit minister in the Welsh government, how the post-Brexit uh, strategy, insofar as there is one, of the UK government impinges upon you and whether you fear that ultimately you end up having to impose austerity, whether you like it or not, uh, because of that relationship and, and how you get around that politically, given that we are going into a, what looks like being an incredibly challenging time economically. Well, we continue to struggle with Brexit every day. Its adverse impacts uh, on Wales are palpable and it doesn't have to be like this. There, you know, I would have uh, preferred that we stayed inside the European Union altogether. But once the decision was made, uh, I always believed it was possible to... Um, devise a set of circumstances in which we would have left the political uh, side of the union, but we would have continued to have had access to the single market, part of the customs union, defended our economic interests in that way. And you know, we, we desperately need a government who believes in working alongside our European partners rather than a constant uh, pattern of provocation. Uh, but on the issue of austerity, you know, we've had a decade of austerity. Mm. We've had a decade of austerity. Uh, I was very proud to knock doors in Wales during the 2017 election, for example, uh, because Weber's manifesto contained so many things that we were already doing in Wales. We promised free prescriptions. We've had them since 2003. We said we would reinstate education maintenance allowances. We've never abolished them. In Wales, we said that we would restore nurse bursaries. We've kept them in Wales. You know, I could list a whole string of things for you that we manage to do within the budget that the Tory government gives to us. Uh, and we do that by making the choices that we would make as a Labour government. Mm. We prioritise the things that we think, you know, leave money in people's pockets mm. so that they can manage the other parts of their lives, and we do it you know, in the conditions of austerity. So that will become more difficult. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in the end, you have political choices to make. You said there, you talked about the, the, the damage that Brexit is doing, the, the consequences being palpable. Um, do you not share my frustration that the Labour Party nationally still seems to sort of have this great elephant in the room? They don't really want to talk about those consequences. And if Labour's strategy is to be a strategy of growth, as Keir Starmer keeps saying, surely there has to be a much more open debate about how we deal with those consequences. Well, Brexit is a, is a frightening uh, topic for politicians because of its divisive uh, nature and you don't want to reopen old wounds and just spend your whole time trying to you know, repair again uh, that damage. I am absolutely sure that you know the next Labour government will take a very different view, not on Brexit itself. That's done, sadly. We're you know we've got to just face up to that. But we'll take a very different view to how we conduct our relations with our nearest and most important partners. You know, most important economically, we will want to have a cooperative set of relationships uh, with them um, again based on mutual respect but will recognise that the interests of Welsh farmers are not served by trade deals far flung on the other side of the world, but are in allowing Welsh farmers to be able to export their fantastic produce to people in the southern Mediterranean who were our biggest customers and who now 
can't buy from Wells because by the time the food gets there, it's no longer fresh or fit to sell. No, we, we, we're coming to the end of the time, and thanks for giving us so much of your time. And sorry for the technical hitches at the start. But before I maybe give Roy the final question, I just want to give my final question. You have said that you'd step down during this term, i.e. before 2026. Um, is that a definitive done deal? Uh, well, I haven't changed my mind. Um, I think one of the one of the things that you know has helped really is that I, I try and answer questions if I'm asked them as best I can, and it was always my plan really that by the time I was halfway through this senate term, I'd be nearly seventy years old by then. Astonishes me, but it, it will be true. There will be uh, it will be right, you know, to hand on to somebody who has the next twenty years in their sights, uh, and we've done that very successfully. In Wales, you know, Cadwyn handed on to uh, Rodri handed on to Cadwyn during a term. Cadwyn handed on to me during a term. I plan to do the same somewhere in the second half of this term. Mark, thank you so much for for coming on. L- last little one from me. Um, do you feel that being in politics damages people? I, f- I felt it was terrible for my mind, my body, my soul. I think I ceased to be a proper human being. I ended up talking to people as though they were voters all the time. Do you think it's had any impact on your character? Well, I'm a politician by accident rather than by design. I never set out to do what I do now. Um, does it change uh, how you are? Well, inevitably it does, doesn't it? Because it's not possible for me in Wales, at least, to go anywhere incognito. If you're out, there will be people who will come up to you, they'll want to talk to you, they'll want to share their views. On the whole, as you know, most people are astonishingly polite, as, you know, just genuinely interested in wanting to have those uh, encounters with you, and you have to regard that as part of the privilege of the job. Uh, my wife went to Tenby, a you know, big Welsh uh, tourist place, uh, recently without me, and came back and said how glad she was to that I wasn't there. <laughs> and she didn't mean that in a nasty way to me. She just meant that she was able to go and just do what she wanted to do without us being stopped every few yards by people wanting wanting to talk. It does change you. It doesn't have to change you for the worse. You know, you just have to regard it, as I say, as part of the privilege of the job that you do. And final, final, final question, Mark. Have you kept up your Latin? I'm fascinated by people who study Latin to the extent that you did. Yeah, well... Uh, I, I try to a, a little bit, and I only ever manage to do it in the summer. Uh, one of the things that I promise myself in the summer, uh, when I have a chance, is uh, I will spend, if I'm walking, which I try and do a fair bit about, then I will learn some poetry as I go along. It's part of keeping your mind uh, busy. And um, I, I will occasionally go back and find some piece of catullus or something and uh, remind myself about it and try and commit it as best I can to uh, to my memory. Well, thank you for talking to us. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope you have. Thank you very much. And we'll maybe do it again another day. All the best. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. So, Alistair, what did you think of that? I really enjoyed that. Um, I thought he was frank. Obviously, he is, <laughs> he is a politician. He's the first minister and he's not going to dive into really difficult areas where he doesn't necessarily want to make news. But I, I, I thought he was very thoughtful, uh, reflective, and, yeah, I enjoyed it. 
So, Alison, one of the things that I thought was fascinating was just this little glimpse into, I mean, obviously, I, I, I was obsessed with it. So this kind of glimpse into labor politics, the 70s and 80s, and these kind of big, big characters, because there were a lot of them in, in Cumbria, too. Going a long way back, there was a guy called Lord Adams of Ennerdale, Jack Adams, who was the kind of great hero of Cumbria in the 1930s, 1940s, brought a lot of the money in, uh, got a lot of the projects going, but quite kind of, some of their reputation, quite kind of authoritarian, quite autocratic in the way they ran things. Oh, yeah, right? absolutely, absolutely. And that, I, I don't know, I think that style of politics has been very common uh, throughout the UK, various periods of history. I loved listening to Neil Kinnock talk about some of the big characters in Welsh politics. And um, no, I thought I thought he was very, he, he does have a, it's interesting you said to him about, you know, he's very polite. He does come across as being very mild-mannered. Yeah. Well, he's, it's a brilliant technique, isn't it? It's a brilliant political technique because what he can do is he can sort of be very gently truthful and hint at his views without really creating a story. So clearly, He's massively left wing, but he's got, he had a very elegant line that, and he, well, you know, was my views in the past. And then he concedes it is my view now, but it's not really my responsibility. It's his responsibility, yeah. yeah. But I, th- I thought, in, you know, I thought he handled the, um, you know, because it's true, when we were in number 10, and I can remember Rodri Morgan was a great character, he really was. Uh, <laughs> and he used to he used to turn up for his meetings with Tony Blair. Carrying, I remember one of them. He turned up literally carrying his papers in a Tesco shopping bag, um, and so it's just he was a very. I really liked Rodri, but he, but and Mark was. I remember Mark was responsible for that. He drove that strategy of what you call clear red water of, of being different, and that could be a bit irritating for us because you know you, you you're at the, you're sitting there at the centre. You think you're all powerful. Tony Blair's the leader of the Labour Party, the Prime Minister, and you've got these guys down in Wales. Sort of, it feels a little bit like you know pot shots. But actually, when you hear him explain it as he did there. You can see the the rationale. You well, can see the strategy kind of, behind. Kind it. of worked out for them, didn't it? Didn't mm. it? And I, I just love the fact that we have part of our United Kingdom, which is being so trashed by these people, uh, the Conservatives, and we've got this part of the United Kingdom which has had a Labour in power for a century. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. I also wonder whether <laughs> the lesson that maybe he's trying to draw, but he's too polite to say, is that if Scottish Labour had been prepared to be more courageously left wing. And maybe Northern Labour are being prepared to be more courageously left wing. They wouldn't be in the situation they're in now. That to hold those bases, they needed to stick hard on the left. Yeah, possibly saying that. I think he was also saying that the. You see, I think the the other thing. I mean, Scotland. Um, so many of our big national figures have come from Scotland, um, and look, plenty of national big national figures have come from Wales as well. But I think he was he was maybe saying. That there was too much a focus in in the UK Labour Party, the Scottish politicians on the UK, whereas he was saying there were a lot of Welsh politicians who really, really focused on Wales. Yeah. Um, but I thought he, I can see why I can see why he remains popular, even yeah. on the basis no, of that no, chat. I'm, I'm with you. The other thing I would have had a go at him on if I'd if I thought I'd make any progress on it, but as you say, he's too polite and smooth to do it. Is this question of all these devolved governments? It's true of Sadiq Khan as mayor of London too, which is that they are in these very odd positions because they don't have much control over a lot of things. And that allows mm. them to blame the conservative government for a lot of stuff without having full responsibility for it. It's quite a kind of clever thing to be in. So they can yeah. take the credit for anything that goes well and anything that goes badly. They can say, that's not our fault. It's the fault of the other lot. Politics, Rory. It's called politics. 
Yeah. Well, but can you ever solve that with devolution? Because it, it makes accountability quite difficult. I remember, you know, with Sadiq Khan trying to say signaling's not been done up on the Piccadilly line since, the, you know, I was doing some independence since the 1970s, and knife crimes rising, and you're meant to be responsible for transport and housing and mm. crime. Right? Mm. But the answer was always Tory cuts. Yeah, and it, and it is. And also, there's no doubt at all that the, the Johnson government has had a strategy for trying to undermine Sadiq Khan that has included targeting the funding of some of the things that he that he is responsible for. I just think that's the that's why these relationships do matter. And I do think that I mean again he was he was even Mark was even very polite about his relations with with Boris Johnson. He clearly can't stand the guy. Yeah, yeah, no that was that was pretty peculiar, wasn't it? Very polite about Boris Johnson. Very <laughs> I mean, he basically he, he made it absolutely clear Johnson showed no respect whatsoever. But one wonders yeah, one wonders around the dinner table what actually he thinks about Boris Johnson or even of Tony Blair. Indeed. Indeed. Well, we know what he talked about, thought about Boris Johnson because he was caught on camera in one of those <laughs> fly on the wall documentaries saying how awful he was. Anyway, well, I enjoyed that. I'm glad we did Great. that. Well, thank you for doing it. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister at that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.